It's been very unique. And I think the series hit our church in a time of a lot of uncertainty and discomfort in the world and this country that were so easy, especially as like rural Americans who uh, want to stick it to the man and don't want to be told what to do and all these things that we got this series. You know, and if you're in Bible studies, or you're in conversations, it doesn't take very long to hear something like, man, this, co- this country is going to pot. I can't believe what's happening in this country. Did you hear what happened this week? Here's this random radio show host said this one thing and it really set me off. And now I can't think of anything else. How long does it take you to be in a conversation until either it comes out of your mouth, like it does mine, or you hear it and you just don't know what to say. You're like, eh, I just, I'm not necessarily up to, up to speed on that brand new detail from the, from the world. And there are two things that I'm hoping that this uh, possibly strange looking psalm does for us, that it gives the believer a new sense of peace or a renewed sense of peace and confidence in the Lord today. Things that this world is never going to do for us. Maybe in small hits it will do for us. But over time, that will be less and less. And my hope today that this takes up all that vacuum that it, it leaves behind. And so I'm going to read the psalm again, and we'll pray. And for a lack of time, because there's so much to cover uh, in the details, I'm just going to jump uh, right into it. So let me read it one more time. Psalm 110. We know this to be a psalm of David. David wrote this. He said, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You pray with me. Father, again, we submit ourselves to your word, to your teaching, to your interpretations of the scripture. I'd ask that you would uh, be with me, especially this morning, and guard my mouth, guide my mouth as we walk through this text. I'd ask that it would change us deeply, me, everyone here, that it would change us deeply this morning, that we would see you new, Christ, of your roles that we see in this text, that you would move us and change us, and we wouldn't stay the same. That this week, something different would happen in our lives because of these truths that we set deep in our hearts. Help us this morning, and I pray this in your son's name. Amen. And so I... I, I felt like I should split this up into three different sections. Verses 1 through 3, verse 4, and verses 5 through 6. And what, what's interesting about this is I said that it's a psalm of David. It calls itself a psalm of David. That the King David wrote this himself. And I think that we need to fr- have this properly framed in our mind because we have, if King David 
And Dr. James Anderson at a Reformed Theological Seminary, he, he worked this out thinking about David. That if David was the pinnacle king of the pinnacle kingdom, like the actual kingdom of God, not America, like the actual kingdom of God, of Israel, he was the pinnacle king of the highest kingdom, then every other king of that kingdom and every other president and king and queen of every other kingdom is below him. He's the earthly king of kings. He's at that pinnacle point of that. So then who is he, re, is he hearing say the Lord, Yahweh, that's the all caps L-O-R-D, remember, the personal name of God. God's not far away. He's close at hand to his people. The Lord says to my Lord, even though there's no one on this planet in the history of uh, authorities higher than David, who is he saying, Yahweh says to my Lord? Well, as Pastor Tom eloquently puts it uh, when this happens, that the best and most perfect way as we interpret Scripture is if Scripture also interprets it for us, we should go there. And we know that in the perfect uh, inerrant word of God that it would be a perfect explanation of a text. And so thankfully... In Matthew 22, Jesus actually works this out for us a little bit. Jesus interprets this text, and it goes like this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, Well, the son of David. And Jesus said back to them, How is it then that David in the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, and here's our quote from this psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus breaks that down that David somehow is hearing or seeing this sort of oracle, they call it, this conversation between the father and the son. That the father is saying to the son, you will sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet like a footstool. That he, Jesus would sit at the right hand in authority and eternal security. And that his church would come to him willingly. That's one through three. And sometimes I think, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of this ground before, and I wanted to go in a, a different route, at least with this, because we know Jesus is sitting at the right hand. We're going to see this later on. We know he's ruling, and he's in authority at the right hand of the Lord, but I think we miss out who placed him there. Who's sitting on the throne to his left? and giving him supreme authority over the earth and the universe and all of the creation, that everything was created through him. Who is David hearing Jesus be talked to? Well, that's the Father. The Father with ultimate authority, the one who created through Christ, the one who holds all things close to him, sits on the throne. And as I was thinking about like, why this would matter for us, like all the way up here in Anago, I, uh, I was remembering this uh, church 
as I was a church planting resident, okay, before I moved here, some similar to Nathan Duke, what he's doing here, studying church planting, talking to church planters, working in a church. And what we would do every Wednesday, we'd call a cohort, and we'd all get in this big room, and it was always too hot, and it was just a bunch of dudes talking around this table. And we'd read something that was interesting, and then we would talk about it. And something that all the guys, even though we were different in many regards, that we all held closely together was the supremacy of God, the, the uh, theology that God controls everything. The sovereignty of God that we held dear, that it wasn't us controlling what people did or did not do. It was the Lord. And as we were in these meetings, all of a sudden, it start, we started to slip into this routine of, well, I just, I wasn't church planting, okay, so I'm off the hook here. But you'd, we'd be talking like we would affect, if, if we just did worship a different way, if we used drums a different way, if we got out there and we handed out tracks in a different way, all these things that we were trying to manipulate into getting people into the church, right? Things you, this church is like 12, 13 years old, right? You've all been through this ringer and you're here today. These guys are all just a couple years in. And it was amazing how quickly we tried to make ourselves the sovereign God over our church and everything that we're doing instead of the Father being sovereign and controlling over the world. One of my favorite musicians, he has a line in one of his songs. He wrote, you hold the reins on the sun and the moon like horses driven by kings. You cover the mountains and valleys below with the breath of your mighty wings. Theologian R.C. Sproul said, if talking about the sovereignty of God over the universe, that if one single molecule in this universe was running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, his ownership, then we would have no guarantee that a single promise of God would ever be fulfilled because that molecule could run amok and derail something down through the thousands of years. And we forgot in this group, in the church planting group in Michigan, that there's not some fickle guy standing on, sitting in the throne of heaven. Right? It's not like every four years there's an election and some new person with weird emotions and weird things that they care about jumps into the throne and now we're off to the races in the other direction. That's not what's happening. So what should we understand? That my little church plant cohort forgot that day. You know, that if the Father is the one who decides, who sits at the right hand of the heavenly throne, then he's also guiding what happens in our lives, right? This is where the peace that I was hoping to communicate, that even if he controls our little lives in the midst of the world, he also is guiding the kings and the queens and the presidents and the governors, you say, where do you get that? Well, Romans 13, 1 through 2, where Paul wrote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It's the Father who's controlling what's going on in this world. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to be anxious. 
We don't have to allow our minds to run a million miles an hour because of all these weird things that we don't understand and we can't control. We can't grip tightly because they're, they're off in Washington, D.C. or they're off in uh, Russia or Ukraine, all these things that we have peace in our life that, as Dr. Sproul put it, the tiniest molecule he controls for all the purposes in this world. That's what we should have been watching for in that meeting, in those church plant meetings, as we wring our hands about church growth and numbers and baptisms, that it's the Father who's guiding all things. And I think that needs to get deep into our hearts and not in any, like, well, I know that God controls the president, but, and then we go on a slew of rants, right? That's so easy for us to do. No, God is in control, full stop. Everything is aligned just how he wanted, full stop, where he says, for the good of those who love him, he's working all things out. Just full stop. If that doesn't bring a weary heart peace, I don't know what will. That Jesus reigns at the right hand of the perfect father who controls all things for the good of his church. That's our hope of peace in this life. That's our hope. Psalm 110 states, the father put the son at his right hand and then he watches over this world. He puts his enemies at his feet. So we should trust and rest our souls under that truth. Just like you go to the beach and you sit under the warm sun and it changes the way you feel. This truth, I think, should do the same. It's the good news for us. Well, my second uh, section and maybe a little more uh, complicated, is verse 4. Just verse 4. I'll read that again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm sure all of us are coming in and going, oh yeah, Melchizedek, I know that guy. He's uh, all over the place, right? Actually, no, he's in, uh, out of the entire Bible. Uh, him personally as a story is only in three verses in Genesis, in a massive, massive book. And to understand what the Father is saying to Christ here, that you will be after a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, well, we should probably do some legwork there. So bear with me. I'll try to make it interesting. But we find Melchizedek in Genesis 14, if you want to flip there, 14, 18 through 20. It goes like this. And Melchizedek, king of uh, Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so we all probably know who Abraham is in the story of uh, Genesis as being the father of the promise, the covenant of Abraham, who Paul works out in Galat the book of Galatians that we're all spiritual descendants of this man and his uh, favor from the Lord of Abraham. Okay, just like David was the pin, one of the pinnacle or the pinnacle pinnacle of leaders, Abraham was the father of the Hebrew people called out from the Gentiles to lead the Hebrews into the, uh, uh, into the numbers that they would be. 
And then uh, in the context of this Genesis passage, his nephew Lot gets swept up in this war between a number of kings, gets removed from the land. Abram hears about this, gathers up his 300 and some men, goes, beats up on their army, rescues Lot, and starts to bring him home. And eventually, on his way home, he crosses uh, the city called Salem, which would eventually become the city Jerusalem. And in this time, if you followed the narrative of Genesis, you would probably remember that Abraham was basically it as far as God's people on the earth. God had wiped everyone out not long before through Noah. Some time goes past. Abraham is called out to where God's people would explode from through him. Right? And then somehow there is a king in Jerusalem, before it's Jerusalem, who worships God. And then that Abraham submits to him, whoever this Melchizedek was. Only three verses that we get it from. He receives a blessing because Melchizedek was a priest. He tithes 10% to him because he was a king of the land. Thankfully, as we're wondering, like, how does this Jesus... You know, Yahweh saying to the son, you're going to follow after that order, that Melchizedek. Thankfully, the author of the book of Hebrews breaks that down for us. So we're going to go to another passage, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. One through ten. This is what the the author of Hebrews, through the Holy Spirit, worked out in comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. This is what he wrote: For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And so if you've been uh, tracking with the way to- Pastor Tom is in explaining type and antitype, shadow and reality, the same word in the Old Testament, everything is fulfilled in Christ. And so we come here, and maybe the bells are ringing in your mind, and you're singing, oh, I've heard that language before, right? The king of righteousness, king of peace. This is just the beginning of our comparison to Christ, who Christ would perfectly be, the true king of righteousness and true king of peace. Moving on, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And of course, we know from a couple other details in the scriptures that this was, this was just a man, right? Okay, he was born and then he died. But we don't have a record in a, of a people who were obsessed with genealogies, as you read through the Old Testament. Obsessed with genealogies. We have nothing on this, on this Melchizedek. But in comparison, in a better way of Melchizedek, Jesus fulfills those things. One truly eternal. One hardly without a genealogy that we trace through David that he's not even 
physically born off right. We see how great, verse 4, we see how great this man was to, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. And where he breaks down, how is this man giving tithes to, or taking tithes from Abraham, even though Abraham's supposed to be the greatest? Well, now we tithe to Christ. Now we give to Jesus and his church. This is something that, uh, in a shadow to reality, that Jesus is the better Melchizedek, who was this amazing figure in simple three verses. If we jump down to verse 21, this is, this is the good part of this. We see, but this one who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus, okay, who is perfect, who cannot fail, who will not fail, who holds you forever, is now the guarantor, the one who holds the title to the new covenant. It's not a fickle man. It's never to be lost. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is our king priest after the order of Melchizedek. To never fail, to never leave, to never let go, I know we've talked about Jesus being the priest before, a few months back. But I was reading this Dutch theologian, uh, Gerhardus Voss. Uh, he was Dutch, moved to America. His dad was a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thank you very much. I'm from Michigan, if you like, didn't understand. the. Okay, thought I'd just throw that out there. But Gerhardus Voss, uh, he, wrote, he wrote this on the priestly role. And I was hoping that this would shine some light on when you hear me say priest, this is the fulfillment that Jesus has today for you on your behalf, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Voss writes, what is the essence of the office of priest? A priest is one who brings near to God. His function differs from that of a prophet in that the prophet moves from God toward man, whereas the priest moves from man toward God. Thus, a priest is one who brings men near to God and who leads them into the presence of God. You, if you are a believer in Christ, that he is Lord and God raised him from the dead on the third day, you are constantly ushered in to the presence of the Father, because Jesus is your priest. And I don't know if we understand this. 
okay, maybe we don't view the Father correctly. Like the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are so pure that any sin in the presence of them would be utterly burned to a crisp, right? And that's even just a dumb analogy because sin is impossible to enter into their presence, right? This, these, these beings, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are so pure and burn with such hot purity that they are so utterly different than we are that we're just contaminated with sin, right? That's, we just do this every day that it should blow us away that we have the opportunity to even be near them. And not only that, as Jesus is our high priest, it's like Jesus coming to us in the waiting room saying, it's your turn. Come on, come on. No, it's okay. I'm covering you. Otherwise you would be burned away, but come into the presence of the father as the priestly role, as after the order of Melchizedek. Voss goes on. This conception must be closely defined, however. The priest does not merely send, but actually brings men near to God. Other elements must therefore be added to the idea. The priest himself must approach God first. Therefore, the representative element must be included in the conception. The priest brings men to God representatively through him, through himself. That's good news. Jesus is bringing you to the Father through himself because he is the perfect one who died and rose again to earn that right for you, that you now have access to the utterly perfect being, the Father, who we have actually earned the opposite of, of just utter destruction, right? And now we're just ushered into his throne room because of Jesus. Secondly, in the priest, the nearness of God is not merely counted as having taken place for the believers. It's not just counted like, okay, it's been done as an imputation, one for the other. Rather, so close is the connection between the priest and the believers that a contact with God and his part at once involves also a contact with God for them. The contact with God is passed on to them as an electric current through a wire. Thirdly, a priest does not content himself with establishing contact only at one point. He draws the believers after himself so that they can come where he is. And you think of it, it's not just a connection point, and Jesus kind of boops you, and you get this one little connection point with God. It's like when you send the four-year-old to make their own PB&J, and it's just everywhere. It's just lathered, right? You have to go and like budget the peanut butter and jelly that they can have because it's just everywhere. It's like Jesus gets you, gets one of those weird adult onesies with a hood on it that my, peop- well, my generation likes to wear for some reason, sticks you in this onesie of holiness where you're just utterly perfect because of Jesus and then chucks you into the Father so you can talk to the perfect almighty God without worrying about anything because Jesus did it for you. All of it. He, that is why the priestly order of Melchizedek, the king priest, just one verse here in this one passage of a man who is only three verses and in the entire Bible matters for you and for me. Because you can imagine this. I don't, I'm going to go off notes. hope this doesn't go poorly. Could you imagine if you would go to the pearly gates, or I don't know if that's heresy, whatever that looks like, Could you imagine if you went up there and said, I'd like an appointment with God, 
with the Father, and whoever's standing at whatever gates there are says, well, we have a, a, like a holiness budget that only two months, if you could sin, if you could not sin for only two months, I'll get you on that calendar. I'm like, two months. It's like 60 days. I could do that. And then you go home, and then you're kicking yourself in bed that night because you have a list of sins that you went and committed, whether it's lust or anger or whatever. You go home, and now you're laying in bed, and I didn't go two hours without sinning, and I needed two months, and that's not even that long of a time. We'd just fail every time. We'd be utterly hopeless. There'd be no hope without the gospel of Jesus Christ who push, puts you in his position in the view of the Father. It's not about, when you're out telling people about Jesus, it's not about just not going to hell, even though that's a pretty good part of the deal. You get to be put in the place of Jesus Christ in the eyes of the Father for all of eternity. So all of the pain of your past, all of the shame that is brought to you by sin, all of the onslaughts of problems brought to you over and over and over. I'm 32, okay? You're, maybe you're double my age. You have all that more experience of issues in your life now that you've got grandkids and kids and things going this way and that way. I even know at this age, knowing that that weight is no longer upon our shoulders is a good and peaceful thing. And we should praise God. Praise God for that. i got to land this plane sometime soon. It'll be going on forever. Our last section, though, verses 5 through 7. I'll try to do this quickly. My hope for this section is, is confidence for the believer. Because I know our brains are going to want to take this section in a, in a bunch of different routes. I, I don't want us to do that. I want us to go this way. Let me read it. Psalm 110, 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. You know, this is talking about that final consummation, the final battle, the final whatever that's going to look like, where Jesus returns for the second time and ends all things. He puts the boot on the neck of evil, as it were. It will be done. Jesus is going to take care of that. And we could get into the nitty-gritties, and that'd be better to do in like a class setting than on a Sunday morning. But I think that we should have confidence. In, in this world that feels like it was built on sticks and is shaking constantly, and we feel like we're teetering on the edge of whatever, we just don't know what it is, we're just on the edge of it. Confidence to know that Jesus has been reigning at the right hand of the Father since his ascension, and he will bring it to completion on the last day. And why does that matter for the believer today? What does that do for us? Why does that change the way we think and behave? And thinking about this, I, I've recently, uh, <laughs> uh, if my wife was here, she'd chuckle. I hate documentaries. Like, I just hate them. I'm sorry, I just do. I, for some reason, I, I would much rather watch some really great series of a story that's been well thought out over many, many seasons than sit down and watch something about some dude who did something bad or something blew up. I just, I just don't, it doesn't sing to me, okay? And if it sings to you, 
God bless you, doesn't to me. But I did get into this kick on a World War II documentary. And whenever I was in high school, my history grade would always tick up real quick during all the Civil War and World War I. I'd always just love that stuff. And so, of course, uh, browsing through Netflix, see this new World War II documentary. And so I started watching it. And uh, it was, uh, I've always been enamored with the man of uh, Winston Churchill in World War II. It was amazing to watch as you go through the history of World War II and what Germany's able to do with their technologies and their manpower to just blitz through Europe and push uh, what was uh, to be uh, similar to the English uh, Marines, the British Expeditionary Force, back to Dunkirk, the port of Dunkirk. And Winston Churchill is elected or whatever, however they do their weird thing in England. Uh, I can say that because Pastor Tom's not here. Uh, however they elect this prime minister, they just do it. And Churchill becomes that right before the events of Dunkirk, while the almost the entire military of England and of Europe is about to be wiped out at this port. In a matter of hours, it could be. The Germans roll up on them and and destroy them. And there was a movie about this time uh, made not long ago called The Darkest Hour. And as the, this moment happens to him where he just feels it's, it's, a, it's a lost cause. Europe is about to be destroyed. England's about to be destroyed. The military's gone. They're going to be a slave state. People within the government want him to sue for peace to Germany. And he's a fighter and he's just losing and he doesn't know what to do. And he's encouraged to go listen to the people and what the will of the people is. And so, according to the movie, uh, he goes down to the subway and he takes a ride on the subway. And uh, in pure movie fashion that I'm sure it's happened just this way historically, they all, do you want to give it to the Nazis? Yeah! And they all say it at the same time, just like real life. And they, oh, well, would you, how do you want to do this? And they say they want to keep fighting to the last person as the entire government just wanted to quit. And he had this great uh, quote. This, he gave a speech to his party to try to embolden them. And he, This is just a section of it. He said, We shall fight in France. We will fight on on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle. And at least according to this movie, this speech is what gives the whole island a backbone in the face of certain defeat until America joins the war. And it's amazing what a strong leader, prime minister, king, president, whatever, can do for a country. But as I've already made the case, that leader does not matter because of who is sitting on the heavenly throne. And if something, someone like Winston Churchill, just a, an old tottering guy who's going to die in a couple years, who as soon as World War II, he's voted out of office because he's no longer needed. Yes, okay, historians, he's voted back in later. But 
if that gives confidence to the Englishman to fight on, how much more should a heavenly God, a heavenly father with his perfect son sitting to the right of his throne, who has promised to come back to put his boot on the neck of evil and to rescue his church from this world and to take them all to the new heaven and the new earth, whatever that's going to look like, in all utter perfection like he is. Why does that offer confidence like I hope it does to the believer? How should we handle that news? Because if we trust Jesus to be perfect, like he has shown himself to be, and the perfect word tells us that he is, should give us utter hope and confidence in him, in this world, so we don't have to worry about what's happening outside because we know what's happening at the top. So that's it. I'm just going to land. I'm going to slam the plane down. I could go on for five more minutes. But that's my hope for you from this passage. This kind of strange conversation that David witnesses between the Father and the Son. That I pray that you have peace and confidence in God on the throne and not about what's happening outside of this building in one way or the other. That you know that that God is working all things for the good of those who love him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my hope for you. So let's pray. Oh God, you are, you are so good. Everything you've claimed has come true or will come true. We have confidence in that. I ask that you'd help uh, everyone here, including myself, to take these truths and for them to spring up when we're starting to freak out or unravel or get anxious that, no, 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 no. I don't have to uh, just let myself run there because God is in control. You are on the throne. You are controlling everything in this world down to the molecule. Let us burn afresh in our souls today, knowing that the truth that you offer through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we will forever be with you in perfection, that at any time that we need you, we have your open door because Jesus sits to the right of you as the perfect priest that connects us to you. Let that sink into our minds and our heart this week. We thank you for this, uh, this text. Thank you for bringing this to us. And we thank you for your son, and we pray this in his name. Amen.